grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Did you know that heart trouble is the leading cause of death in the world today? I'm referring to the medical kind of trouble. So out of the 56 million worldwide deaths in 2017, the, the latest year the WHO has that breakdown globally, nearly 18 million of those 56 million were heart or stroke related. That's 32%. That's a third of all deaths worldwide. Now you may have also heard that here in the U.S. and other first world countries that cancer is actually caught up and even in some place surpassed heart disease as the primary killer. For countries with better health care and living conditions, you do have more to fear from cancer today. But thinking in terms of the whole world, the heart remains the main challenge. Today we're going to be looking at a different kind of heart trouble. One that afflicts not our blood-pumping, four-chambered heart, but the very center of our personality, the very center of our being. And this kind of heart trouble, it can afflict anyone, young or old, good or bad. Nobody is immune to it. Even Jesus was not immune to this kind of heart trouble. Now in John's Gospel up to this point in our reading from chapter 14 today, there are at least three instances when Jesus' heart was troubled. The first came in John chapter 11 when Jesus felt sorrow at losing his good friend Lazarus. The second came right after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he told Philip and Andrew that his time had come, his hour had come referring to his fast-approaching death on the cross. He said these words, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And the third time Jesus was troubled in heart comes in John chapter 13, when Jesus revealed to his disciples that one of them at the table with him on that Passover Eve was going to be the one to betray him. Now, this idea that Jesus could be troubled in spirit, it, it, there's nothing wrong with it, right? It should show us that we are allowed to be troubled in heart and spirit as well. It's part of life on this side of glory. It's part of living here in a fallen creation. But what's important, friends, is how we deal with a troubled heart. For this, we're going to need a right remedy, which comes only from the great physician, from our Lord Jesus himself. And because he understands perfectly what it feels like to be troubled in his own heart, well, his cure is bound to be the most effective way to deal with it. Remember this passage in John, it falls right in the middle of the Passover celebration. Huge celebration, Jews all around the world are flocking to Jerusalem. And here Jesus is with his 12 disciples, having what we call now the Last Supper with them. And right in the midst of Jesus sharing that he's going to be suffering, that he will leave them, that one of them will betray him, all this sobering news, there were so many questions. The disciples had to have been asking, why does our master have to leave us? Why could he not stay with us longer? What will become of us when he's gone? 
Now, I think most of us are no strangers to question like this. They tend to trouble us most when there's something unexpected, an unexpected turn of events. Maybe our current situation in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic has you feeling helpless, has you feeling powerless. Maybe the company that you've been working at so comfortably and securely for many years has merged now, and now you have extra stress and worry about your job or about the workload. Maybe a member of your family is diagnosed with cancer. It's in all these situations, these questions that are troubling. Like, why did this have to happen? Why can't things just stay the way that they were? Where is the fairness in this? And right here, my friends, as Jesus does with our disciples in our reading, he presents to you the good, no, the great news that his followers have no fear, should have no fear, and no worry. I really like the paraphrase of the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the HCSB. John chapter 14, verse 1 says, Your heart must not be troubled. Not simply, don't be troubled, but stronger. You must not be troubled. Of course, picking up on the sureness of Jesus' words to his troubled disciples. These words from John chapter 14, so often used as reassuring readings that we would hear at a funeral. These first four verses from John 14 are such a message of promise and a message of contentment that speaks so clearly to a believer's heart. What does it really mean, let not your hearts be troubled? What does Jesus say that? Hmm. Well, it means stop being troubled in your spirit. Don't worry, be happy would be the contemporary version of that. Keep on believing, keep on trusting in the Lord. Keep looking up to him and don't give up. Now, these words are wonderful, and I'm sure that Jesus' disciples, I can just imagine Jesus sharing these words, and having him right there with him must have been an awesome and reassuring presence. Even though he was telling them at the same time that very soon, no longer would he be there physically with them. So at the same time, he's sharing with them bad news, he's sharing with them good news. But I'm sure they still had questions. How would they and we perform without the physical, tangible presence of Jesus with us? But friends, Jesus didn't leave it at that. After saying these things, Jesus gave his disciples two very real and important truths that would help them to stop being troubled in their heart. And friends, they can be a great source of encouragement for you and I as well. The first truth that Jesus lays out is that our eternal home is in heaven with Jesus. It's not here. We see this in verse 2 and 3 when Jesus says these words. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, and I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now, have you ever felt a little out of place, uncomfortable, not quite at peace with things? Well, most of my dad's life, he felt that way daily. 
He had a rough childhood, grew up without a dad and had other family issues. All of his life he dealt with depression, anxiety, food and medication allergies, seasonal allergies, skin sensitivities, and the list goes on and on. He rarely felt comfortable while he was alive on this earth. Dying at 72 was not something that my family were prepared for, even thought could happen. But the solace we have, and even though it may seem cliche or a meaningless phrase, my dad is home now. He's feeling peace that he never had at all while he walked the earth. That song that we sang just a few moments ago, I'm but a stranger here, there's a verse that isn't in our hymnal, and it goes like this. There at my Savior's side, heaven is my home. I shall be glorified, heaven is my home. These, there are the good and blessed, those I love most and best, and there I too shall rest, heaven is my home. Now, at the time that Jesus lived in Israel, it was common for closely related families to live together under one roof as an extended family. As the sons of the family would grow up and get married, additional rooms would be added and prepared for them. So the house would get bigger and bigger. It would grow up and it would grow out. The son that was going to get married would assure his bride that after he's got their room built and prepared, that he will come and take her there to live with him in his father's house. In this passage, Jesus is doing the same thing. He's promising his disciples that he's going back to prepare a place for them in the many rooms or the mansions of his father's house. Jesus is promising just like a groom would promise his bride that he will come back and take her to live with him after he has prepared a place for them. So friends, isn't it so exciting? Isn't it encouraging to be able to look forward to the time when Jesus will return to take each and every one of us to live with heaven, with him forever? That verse three is just awesome. Let's read it again. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And Jesus, my friends, will be there not just in spirit, the way he's with us now, but he'll be there in person, fully perceptible to us. And we will find great joy just hanging out with Jesus, just being with Jesus, just talking with Jesus. There's another hymn that expresses this, a desire for heaven. It's called Over the Sunset Mountains, which is not in our hymnal. And it was composed by John Peterson. And the final phrase of this hymn goes like this. Over the sunset mountains, heaven awaits for me. Over the sunset mountains, Jesus, my Savior, I'll see. The story goes that Peterson took this hymn to a publisher. And the publisher liked it. He listened to it and said, there's just one change, one suggestion Take out that reference to Jesus and add a little bit more. Expand on this idea of heaven. Apparently, Peterson said, heaven without Jesus? Unthinkable. So he took back his manuscript, went to another publisher. My friends, the point is this. Jesus is what makes heaven, heaven. Heaven is heavenly because he is there. 
Doesn't it just comfort you to know that no matter how bad things look in the world, that one day you will be with Jesus in heaven, in a wonderful home, with such a better life that is waiting for you? Doesn't that truth give you the security you need to cope with all the pain and loss and hopelessness that you may have to endure here for a little while? To know, hey, my ultimate future is completely assured by Christ. I'm on my way to heaven right now. I'm on my way. And nothing, absolutely nothing at all can ever change that. Friends, that's a great encouragement, but it's not the only encouragement we have before us in this reading. Let us go on to see the second encouraging thing that Jesus mentions to his disciples, and that it is our privilege to know the Father through our faith in Jesus. Whenever our hearts are troubled, it should be encouraging to know that there is someone that we can turn to for help, and of course, that someone is God. But that assumes, my friends, that you can find God, that you can recognize God. And friends, that can be sometimes so hard. People throughout the ages have been trying to find God and know him, but so often without success. So how can someone turn to God unless they can find him? That is where we are so privileged those who believe in Christ have the freedom of knowing God, to turn to him, of being helped by him in our hour of need. Verse 5 and 6, Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 6 here is one of maybe the most important verses in the Bible. As one commentator put it, this verse is the ultimate foundation for a satisfactory philosophy of life. If you base your life on this idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you're going to turn out just fine. And this verse is also the greatest revelation that Jesus ever gave about himself in the book of John. But notice, my friends, what he did not say, what Jesus did not say. He didn't say, I'll give you some rules to follow that will lead you to the Father. No, he said, I am the way to the Father. He didn't say, uh, here are some truths that you can use to convince others about me. No, he said, I am the truth. And notice, he doesn't say, I'll tell you what you can do to lead a good and perfect life. No, he said, I am the life. And no one can make such awesome statements about himself truthfully except our Lord Jesus. And because he is the way and the truth and the life, there is no other way except through him. But as we know, many claim that there are other ways to God besides Jesus. If there is a God, some people claim. And that you and I are just being narrow-minded when we say Jesus is the only way to God. They get angry. They get offended when they hear those words. So what should our response be to this? To the accusers who say Christians are intolerant and hateful to folks who aren't Christian. To say that our closed-minded perspective, it's just unloving to others that don't agree with us. 
Well, in this new normal of our kids and students doing distance learning, my youngest son, Elliot, and I will often work together at the same table in our basement. He'll be doing his schoolwork. You know, he doesn't sit normally like a regular kid, never with his pockets down. He's always flailing around. I told our office assistant the other day that if he could hang upside down and work on computer, he would probably do that. So he's working on his schoolwork. I'm, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm probably pretending I'm working pretty hard. But Ellie and I will be working at the same place at the same time. And when we were working a few weeks ago, Elliot asked me a question that I thought was kind of goofy. He said, Papa, do you know what fishing is? Well, yeah, it's something you do at a lake, right? No, Papa, fishing, like scams and stuff, you know? For those of you who maybe don't know this, Fishing is a term to describe a malicious person or a group of people trying to get things from you by scamming you. So they'll send you emails or create web pages designed to collect an individual's online banking or credit cards or other login information. So phishing for your personal information. Elliot was learning in his tech ed class how to tell legitimate emails or websites from scams. Basically, it came down to this. If they're offering you something for nothing, it's a scam. Legitimate requests will come from recognized company or personal domains, and if you don't know what that means, that's fine. But if you get an email from Zion Lutheran, it better have at zionlutherans.org on the end of it. You get a request from Amazon or your bank or the library, you should recognize the address. Now, how, Pastor Dan, does this phishing analogy help us? Well, where does God tell us about himself? Where does God share his story of granting salvation to us through his son? Where do we learn about the position he holds as the creator and sustainer of every good thing? Well, obviously, the Bible. The most studied, referenced, critiqued book in all of human history. So the analogy I make here should help us answer the question when people ask us, how can you say that there is only one way to God? Friends, God invites us to learn about him in the Bible. So very simply, if someone tries to convince you that there is another way to God, a way that's not biblical, it's a scam. It's fishing. You see, the devil, the world, and our own sinful selfishness constantly pressure us to recognize a different way, to accept a different way than Jesus to get to God. But they're all scams because they aren't from God. So because the way to God can only be discovered in the Bible, we can confidently say there is only one way to God because God says so. We are not God. God is God. He makes the rules. If he says that's the way it is, that's the way it is. Scripture unequivocally says that belief in God's plan through Jesus, the Christ's life, death, and rising, that that is the one and only way to truth. What truth? Well, the truth about you and that special plan he has that's unique to you. The truth about your relationships with others. The, the truth about God's amazing love for each one of us. And you find out about the one true God throughout the Bible in passages like this one in Deuteronomy. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no one other besides him. 
And from 1 Kings we hear this, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. And next, we hear from John chapter 17. And this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And finally, from 1 Timothy. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. No matter what anyone else claims, the truth that you and I must be fully convicted of in our hearts and minds, that there is only one God and only one way to God, and that is through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we say that, friends, we're not trying to be unkind, at least I hope not. We're not trying to be prideful, I hope not. We're not trying to be bigoted or narrow-minded. We're not saying that we're better than other peoples of different religions who are very sincere and devoted to our own faiths. No. We are hopefully stating in all humility what God himself has so clearly laid out to us and revealed to us in his word. We are sharing what the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, emboldens us to know with certainty that no one can come to the Father except through his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's conclude by returning to our passage and reading the next two verses. Jesus said, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Please take special care to see what Jesus said here. Philip's request to Jesus seemed to be good and reasonable. Show us the Father, Jesus, and that'll be enough for us. After all, isn't that what Jesus came to this world to do? To show us the Father and his will for us? But you see, Philip... He was expecting something a little bit more, not just what appeared to be a plain human man that lived and talked and ate and slept like everyone else does. Now, Philip said, I want to see something special, maybe like Moses got to see on the mountain all those centuries before. But all he saw was a man, a man who could do miracles, who could teach, probably very charismatic, which was a good thing. But all he was seeing was the outward physical appearance of Jesus, and it looked like he was a man just like Philip. Well, Jesus says, he told Philip that he had been showing them the Father all along, not in his outward appearance, but by what he shared with them, the miracles that he did, what he taught them, how he dealt with people, how he cared for people, all of his actions, and in fact, all of his personality. No one who has ever lived ever had such a personality or spoke such words or did such works because no one else was God's own unique only begotten son. And friends, when we know this truth, when we understand why there can only be a single way to know God and have a personal relationship with him, we know it's through Jesus and through what the Spirit reveals to us. And it's so important because Everyone, man, woman, and child, to know God personally 
and to have access to him must believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's only when a person has found this way that she has found herself the best ally, friend, and companion that this life holds. There is no greater source of encouragement for facing life difficulties, not only now, but in the future. Jesus is everything that you need for every kind of need. And it's when you have this personal relationship with God through Christ that you also have a new life and you have a power to follow his plan and serve him. And friends, I pray that Jesus will be strong in your hearts this week, that you will find and trust and be encouraged by his not tangible but spiritual presence around you, that you may know one day you will be in heaven with him and live your life as if you believe that with all of your heart and mind. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.